Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. It's time. Time for stimulating talk. Time for thought-provoking conversation. Time for the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. Turn on your brain and get the real scoop on today's topics and events. Here is Lisa Wexler. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Toast to Kirstie Alley. Boy, she passed away yesterday at the age of 71, way too young, of what is being described as a fast-moving cancer. Her kids made the announcement. They're devastated. We really don't know too many details. But uh, welcome to the show today. I'm Lisa Wexler. Hello and good morning. 203-333-9422 is our number. Feel free to call in at any time. Our guests, when they come on, know that they are expected to take a question or a comment from you, and we're having... Two uh, wonderful guests today. We're actually going to have on the leader, the head of the Greenwich Country Day School, who gave a speech recently about the aspects, the encouragement, what it is to create good character in our young people. Personally, I think that's a conversation we could have every single day. I'm really interested to hear his thoughts and his professional expertise on it. His name is Adam Rohde. And then at 11.15, we are going to have the Director of Infectious Disease at Northern Westchester Hospital join us. Dr. Nanzo Osakwe is coming on, and he's going to talk about this RSV, which I think, I think Melissa Sheketoff has done a great job. I've been listening to some of her interviews as well. But it's still a relatively not well-known disease, and it seems to be having an impact on our kids more than our adults, and that with the confluence of flu and COVID, which is still hanging around. I just thought it was important to have another conversation about all of these upper respiratory illnesses. 203-333-9422. But it really came as a shock to hear that Kirstie Alley had passed away because she was such a vibrant individual. She was such a, a no-holds-barred, 
either you like me or you don't. I really don't care much. Here's my opinion. She was willing to flout the censors. She got into a lot of trouble on Twitter once in a while. Uh, she gained a lot of weight. And for a, a young actress who was known for her beauty in the early stages of her career, you know, that's a one-two punch that Hollywood cannot stand, right? I mean, you can just be everything, but you can't be fat in Hollywood as a young, beautiful woman. So that was a big issue for her. And she got a lot of nasty comments online, always about her body image, which she struggled with. She would go up, she would go down, she'd go up again. But her struggles were public. She was very brave. Uh, she was described as crazy by just about everybody who worked with her, but in a very lovable way. And she was an avowed Scientologist. I don't think that she parted from Scientology uh, to her last day. But, of course, as a celebrity, she experienced Scientology in a very different way than the average person experiences Scientology because Scientology is known for its special treatment of celebrities. She uh, grew up and was born in Wichita, Kansas. She went to a public high school. She left college at Kansas State after her sophomore year, and she made her way to L.A., it is said by Wikipedia, to pursue Scientology, among other things. But I have a story about Kirstie Alley. I never got to interview her, but here's my own personal true story. So in 19, okay, five and three is eight, right? In 1989, my husband turned 30, and we were living in Manhattan, and we were having the good life. We were a young, yuppie couple, and I wanted to celebrate Bill's 30th birthday, by having a small party for him at the Rainbow Room, which I'm sure that you know what the Rainbow Room was. It may still, in fact, be, but it's much more limited than it used to be. It was this beautiful, beautiful room at the top of the uh, NBC building, and it swirled around on the 60th floor. It moved. It had a revolving, it moved, and it was very famous for having big band dancing in the center of the orchestra. And Bill and I had gone there as often as we could anyway uh, to go to the Rainbow Room. And I had actually gone there before Bill. It was my first date when I was 16. A guy who wanted to impress me uh, took me to the Rainbow Room. So I had been there. I loved the Rainbow Room. And I also loved 40s music. And I loved swing dancing. And Bill and I had gone to Arthur Murray when we got engaged. And so we knew how to get on a dance floor and have a good time. And we still do. So I was taking Bill to... The Rainbow Room for his 30th birthday, and he didn't know that it was a bit of a surprise party, that we were going to be greeted at the table by about eight or ten of our nearest and dearest. And I got all dressed up, and I wore a strapless little white puffy number, a very 80s puffy number, something that puffed everywhere and stopped at the mid-thigh. You know, one of these Melanie Griffin from Working Girl puff numbers. And I had my hair done, my earrings I got into the elevator. Maria Shriver was in the elevator. And I'll never forget, she said, oh, look who's so pretty tonight. It was so nice of her to say that. I remember that. I'm thinking, you're Maria Shriver. You work here at NBC. And anyway, so Bill and I got up to the, got up to the Rainbow Room for his 30th birthday. And who should be on the dance floor with us? You want to guess? It was Kirstie Alley dancing with John Travolta at the Rainbow Room. For Bill's 30th birthday. Now, they weren't there for Bill's 30th birthday, but I was dancing next to them. And then I found out that Kirstie Alley and John Travolta 
were working together. Do you remember they starred in Look Who's Talking? And Look Who's Talking 2 was a huge blockbuster movie at the time. I think Bruce Willis played the voice of the kid. It was an adorable movie. It had a second movie afterwards. It had a sequel. But they were getting to know each other, and they were doing their dance moves on the little ballroom stage of the Rainbow Room. That's my Kirstie Alley story. And she couldn't have been more beautiful. And she couldn't have been more lovely and smiling and happy and in a happy way. And just exuded, just exuded self-confidence and youth and fun. And I've always thought of her in that moment. And I was very sorry to hear that she passed so quickly, so suddenly. I thought that she was brilliant in her depiction of Rebecca in Cheers. Let's hear a little bit of that. Knock. Have it. Oh my God. <laughs> well, this place doesn't even look like my office anymore. Thank you. Wasn't easy. How could you do this? I mean, you took away all the, all the charm, all the warmth. Where's Dave? Dave? My moose head. <laughs> I set him free. <laughs> if he really loves you, he'll come back. She was so great because you remember that Sam and Diane were this love-hate, love-hate relationship that lit up the screen and made everybody watch the sitcom. And then in, you know, yet another annal of sitcom history, Diane got too big for her britches, Shelley Long, and she went to disappear into Hollywood where she never really reappeared from forever. But in any event, she went to pursue movies, right? She went to follow the siren song, the TV isn't good enough, let me go into the movies, goodbye and good luck. Meantime, Dead Dancing's done pretty well on the small screen all these years with an occasional occasional flyer into the movies, but basically he's kept his feet in the media that did him so well. In any event, Shelley Long was gone and there was panic in the hallways of Cheers because who could replace Shelley Long? And Kirstie Alley inhabited this role of this sardonic, sarcastic, but ultimately helpless uh, and wonderfully relatable character named Rebecca who took over the bar. And honestly, if you watch the reruns, and if I do, of Cheers, I enjoy Kirstie Alley more than I ever did uh, Shelley Long. I just do. I think she was better. I'm Lisa Wexler, 203-333-9422. Just a little bit of a nostalgia opening salvo here on the Lisa Wexler show. We're going to turn to news and we'll talk a little bit about the arraignment and what we discovered about the Naugatuck man, Christopher Francis Queenie, when we return. Streaming online, on your phone, and on your smart speaker, the Lisa Wexler show is back on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. And welcome back to the show, 203-333-9422. So let's talk a little bit about what we discovered at the arraignment yesterday of Christopher Francis Queenie, which was accompanied by an over $5 million setting of bail, and he is behind bars, at least for now. This is what we know about him, according to Lisa Packus and Peter Yankowski, Liz Hardaway, all reporting for the Connecticut Post. Um, you know that he's been accused of mutilating his 11-month-old daughter, Camilla, and leaving her body in his room in the basement and then leaving the house to go shopping for Thanksgiving dinner with her mother. This is according to an arrest warrant charging him with the homicide. Now, one of the things that I like to do when I look through a story is I always stop and I say, 
oh, here's something that went wrong. Oh, here's something else that went wrong. Why don't I, as I tell you the story, why don't you count the so many places where this thing went wrong, okay? And again, these are allegations. These are reporters gathering what they believe to be the facts. Um, Nothing has been proven in a trial court yet, and we don't even know how this man is going to plead. But here is what the account is thus far. Uh, The account is that this little one was sleeping, 11 months old, and the mother and father left to go to Walmart. The article doesn't say whether or not there was any other adult or human being in the home when the 11-month-old was left presumably sleeping. The mother thought that she was sleeping, and the father didn't allow the mother to check on her before they both left. And she reported that he seemed to be very anxious that she go with him to Walmart, where he was supposedly meeting somebody there. It's unclear why. And that person that was supposedly meeting him there according to this account, followed the mother in some way. Uh, What is also reported is that in the days before this happened, he, Francisquini, reportedly had said to others that he wanted to kill his father. But nobody thought, according to this account, that he was going to kill his daughter because he apparently appeared to love his daughter. The mother's name is Crystal Nieves, and she told police during an interview, after her daughter had been discovered, that Francis Queenie had been diagnosed as, quote, bipolar, and, quote, sometimes hears voices in his head. As well, the article says that he wasn't on any medication except for Marijuana. Francis Queenie was dressed in a white jumpsuit and shackles with a half a dozen judicial marshals nearby during the arrangement. He didn't acknowledge that he had two public defenders, not one, but two, including when the judge asked if he was aware of who the three protected individuals were by their initials. In other words, if he was aware that he was supposed to not be in contact with these other people. He didn't acknowledge awareness. The district attorney is Platt. He argued for a $7 million bond on the murder case alone. In addition to upping the other bonds, he said, quote, this involves the death and horrific mutilation of a child two weeks before her first birthday, telling Judge Schwartz this. Platt also pointed out that Francis Queenie had fled the scene, remained on the loose for two weeks, failed to appear at any of his pending cases, had cut off his ankle bracelet, and refused to be fingerprinted when he was processed for arrest. She said he's an extreme risk for a flight risk and extreme risk to public safety. Camilla's family was in the courtroom. They wore shirts with her image on them. They didn't speak to the media on the way out. Francis Queenie is scheduled to appear Tuesday, which is to say, I believe today, in State Superior Court in Bridgeport on charges of failing to appear in court. He will then appear Wednesday in State Superior Court in Milford 
for failing to appear on charges out of that jurisdiction. And he was on the run for two weeks before Waterbury police apprehended him on Friday at a bus stop. He was arraigned yesterday. Naugatuck police allege in the warrant that the 33 that the 31-year-old strangled and stabbed his daughter and further than that dismembered her. And then he took the mother to Waterbury, where they wound up in a PetSmart parking lot. Perhaps you know the place. I don't. During an argument in the parking lot, Francis Queenie destroyed both of their cell phones, cut off his court-ordered electronic tracking, and Nieves told police that she got home from work around 10 a.m. when she thought her daughter was sleeping upstairs. As soon as she got home, Francis Queenie told her they had to go to Walmart to buy food for Thanksgiving. And when she said she wanted to change her clothes before they went shopping, he told her, don't touch the room. I'm going to clean when I get home. She reported that Francis Queenie was, quote, rushing her out, and he would not let her in their bedroom. And it's a little bit confusing in the story. It appears as if she thought the baby was sleeping in the bedroom. But in fact, the baby, it appears, was found in the basement. But I think there was a lot of blood in the bedroom. Thinking they were going to a Walmart in Naugatuck, a sweating Francis Sweeney, again, this is according to the Connecticut Post account, instead drove to Waterbury. So in other words, they never did go to the PetSmart. They went to Waterbury to meet up with a man at a different, at the PetSmart parking lot. Sorry, a different one. After their dispute, Nieves went into the pet store to call for a ride, but she was followed by the man that Francis Queenie apparently had wanted to meet there. And when she got picked up from the store, she noticed that the father and the vehicle were gone. She walked into the house and went to clean up the room. At around 11.30 a.m., she found her daughter dead and started screaming, Police saying they found the child mutilated on the floor among small pools of blood. A family member told police Francis Queenie was prescribed medication for bipolar disorder, but didn't believe he was taking it based on his behavior. Francis Queenie said he was, quote, always hearing things. And a few days before the homicide, he said, quote, the voices keep telling him to kill his father. The family member urged him to seek help. He was known, quote, to only smoke marijuana. The family member also said Francis Queenie never said anything about hurting his daughter and, quote, he treated her as if she was everything. But at the time of the homicide, he was already on a special parole for a 2012 assault conviction. He was wearing this electronic monitoring ankle bracelet, which he later cut off. He was out on bond for pending court hearings. And uh, the killing has prompted state child advocate Sarah Egan to investigate how Francis Queenie was being monitored while on special parole and released on a $375,000 bond. I think there are further questions here as well that need to be raised, asked, and answered. Um, I will leave that to you to figure out all the places where this seems to have gone wrong. It seems to me there are many. 203-333-9422. We're going to be right back with more of the Lisa Wexler Show. Adam Rohde, head of Greenwich Country Day School, will be on. And we're going to have a conversation about teaching and encouraging our children to be people of good character when we return. 
where Wilton comes first for news and talk. The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. And welcome back to the show. Good morning, good morning. Well, joining us right now is a gentleman who has literally spent his entire life thinking about and shaping uh, the character of young people. He is the head of school, Adam Rohde, at the Greenwich Country Day School, the only co-ed nursery to grade 12 college prep day school in Greenwich. He also teaches eighth grade U.S. history, so he's in the classroom with the kids every day. He coaches boys basketball. Prior to being at Country Day, he was the assistant headmaster and head of the upper school at the Pingree School in New Jersey, which is a well-known college prep school there, too. He has very definitely not only Connecticut roots in terms of the ones he's establishing now, but he's a graduate of Wesleyan University in Middletown. After that, he received his master's in Stanford in California, and he has been the head of various professional organizations. He has a wife. He has two children, and we welcome Adam Rohde to the show. Hello, and good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So so may I call you Adam? Please call me Lisa. Please. Okay. Please. So, sure. Um, thank you. By the way, what do they call you? At school, what is the title that the children call you? They just call me Mr. Rody, and Mr. maybe Rody. the basketball kids might go with Coach Rody. So either one okay. is fine with me. So they don't say like Head Rody or something like that. There's no, no like designation no, no. like that. Okay, I didn't know. What do I know? <laughs> I'm not a prep school person. Yeah. What can I tell you? I'm. I was public school. What can I tell you? Anyway, well, I was a public school person as well. So yeah, I'm, I okay. find myself on the other side of the fence now. <laughs> okay. Well, listen. There's a, there's a lot to recommend these lovely schools that you've been part of, but they are costly. And I think that they they do a great job in making kids feel special. I wish the public schools sometimes did that same aspect. But I I was very intrigued by the fact that you wanted to have a conversation, in fact, did a couple of weeks ago, about shaping character for kids. And I'd like to hear first, um, Adam Rohde, what is your – what what is the end goal that you want to have with the kids that come through, that pass through your way? Sure. Well, you know, I'm a believer that in any of these schools, and I'm a big believer and a proponent of the public schools as well, that kids are going to emerge from the schools. There's Teachers are just sort of the best, and they're going to emerge from these schools able to write a five-paragraph essay and balance a chemical equation and know the Pythagorean theorem. Um, what I think Maybe. is going to differentiate— Maybe. Maybe. I think you're well, pushing it. I think you're pushing let's, it, but let's okay. hope. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, for the most part, I'm a believer, and, okay. and what I'm, what I'm really— sort of focused on is if we can assume that for just a second, then it's this next part, which is how do you produce children with a finely tuned moral compass? Um, How do you produce children who, when they get to college and beyond, are going to be good teammates and good classmates and um, kids who are going to not be a drag on the health systems of colleges because they're depressed or they're anxious? Um, How are they going to be kids who are going to be involved in community service and and leaders in a positive way? And um, as I look at what we're trying to do at Country Day, um, we're just trying to be really intentional about that and um, make it at the forefront of of our thinking. So what are some of the secrets to the secret sauce to do that. I agree Hmm. with you. I think we have far too people, far too few people uh, as adults, even as children now being raised by adults who, who are caring and considerate of others, who know what it's like to sublimate their own selfishness for the sake of other people. And we don't function well as a society unless we have those basic values. So 
How do sure. you how do you do that? You know, it, it's it's in a million little ways, um, and then obviously some big ways. But I, I like to, when I walk on a school campus, try to get a sense of what is it that the school values. And I think you can find that by what are they putting on the walls? What kind of awards are they giving? You know, what do they celebrate at their graduations? And, um, you know, as we think about what we're trying to do here, uh, it, it really is all about character. And uh, we have an acronym that's called Tiger Pride. And we start talking to the children. Uh, they're three years old. And it becomes almost like a verb for them. They'll say, that's not showing Tiger Pride. And, and Tiger Pride is an acronym it means like thoughtful and inclusive and generous and empathetic and respectful and polite and responsible. Uh, and I can go through the sort of the list. And um, if you're talking about that with children all the time, and it then becomes an age appropriate way of uh, really organizing their world, um, they know that it's important. And when I stand up in front of the kids on the first day of school in the high school, and I tell them, you know, I, I, of all of our rules, we have a dress code and we have to be on time and the, the kinds of things which are sort of a drag for a high school kid. Um, I tell them that at the end of the day, the, really the two that are going to have you on the couch in my office are um, tell the truth and be kind. And if you violate those two rules, um, the consequences are going to be swift and severe. Um, you know, at the end of our school year, we're going to celebrate the kids who are those kids who were not the most likely to succeed, but actually the most likely to help others succeed. And, and we use that verbiage when we give awards. Um, we celebrate the artist and the academician as much as we might celebrate the athlete. And I think that's um, an important way of showing um, what is important in a school and when kids know that being kind is is important and being courteous is important and character is important, it is something that um, hopefully it, it becomes inculcated into them and they carry it with them for the rest of their lives. Um, I'll give you one more quick example. You know, we'll give um, – a little coin. It's a Tiger Pride coin. When a kid does something that's above and beyond, um, you know, sticks up for a friend, um, tells somebody else that their language is in, inappropriate, and that might be just a, a one-off where we'll pull the kid aside and say, "Wow, that was really special." And um, this is just a little token of us saying we saw that and and we caught you doing something good, and we want you to know how uh, proud we are of you. And I'll call the parents that night and say, "Hey, I just wanted you to know that." Your, your daughter did something really amazing. She stuck up for a friend, and we celebrate that. And so I think it's through those little things that you create that special sauce. So I, you know, I'm listening to you, and, I'm, and I would like to know, Adam Modi, and I know that you're a professional in the independent day school world, but I'd like to know why it is we have decided as a society, in many cases, to abdicate that aspect of raising our kids in the public school world. I'm not sure we've abdicated it as much as we've created a, a lot of bureaucracy, which has gotten in the way of of because I'm as I said I'm a public school person. I grew up in public schools. I've taught in public schools, um, and I, I, I don't want to um, you know think like our, our public school teachers have thrown their hands up. Uh, to the contrary, I think they fight against a system that becomes really difficult uh, when you have. 
legislation coming from sort of the top around a set of core standards that you've going to be tested on in third grade and again in sixth grade and uh, you're going to be judged as a teacher by how well your children are doing on these tests uh, it really changes your focus it really makes you say okay this is what's most important to me right now and, and to my success and my career and then it almost forces some of this, these other aspects into the back seat. And, um, and I don't blame a teacher for that for a second. Uh, I think there's some structural, systematic things we have to look at. It's interesting because, honestly, it's all, this, it's all part of, in other words, character. If you ask me, I think character is more important than specifically academics. But it doesn't mean that academics aren't important. So... And we do. We put a tremendous burden on our teachers. And maybe you're right. Maybe the issue is we're saddling the teachers into a system that, you know, inevitably fails because it is too saddled with too much bureaucratic stuff. And well, well, I don't know. We, um, when, but we are failing well, in our I mean, public schools, Adam. We are. I mean, the statistics yeah. show well, we are. Yeah, well, let me let me give you what I Greenwich Country Day for uh, almost a hundred years was a nursery through ninth grade school, which was a little bit of an interesting model. And then kids left us after eighth or ninth grade, and went either to the public school, which is Greenwich High School, terrific public school, or went to the other independent schools in town, or went out, went off to boarding school. We uh, four years ago uh, added our senior school, so we're now a nursery through 12th grade school. But um, what was interesting was the day after we announced that we were going to uh, open a high school, I actually got in the car and drove to uh, Wesleyan University. You mentioned in, in the intro, that's where I went. Um, I met with the president of the college and the provost of the college, and um, I said, if you were going to help me paint a picture of what a high school graduate you guys would like to see entering your hallways, um, talk to me about what that would look like. And um, they both said, and, and this was to a person, they said, um, we've just come back from a NESCAC meeting. And um, NESCAC are the New England small colleges. It's sort of the Bowdoin, Colby, Bates, Middlebury, Tr Tufts, Trinity, Wesleyan, Williams, Amherst, that, that group, all very good schools. And the presidents had a two-hour meeting, and they really just discussed one thing, and it was this: the, the kind of kids that they have been receiving have created a, a 40% increased demand on their health services. The kids are coming in with depression, with anxiety, with suicidal ideation, with drug and alcohol, and that's becoming uh, the overriding burden on these schools. And his point was, he didn't talk to me about academics for a second. He didn't say we need a median SAT score of X. He didn't say you should really spend time on the ACTs. He kept reminding me that this is all about character. It's about creating kids who are mature, who are well-rounded, who can advocate for themselves, who can engage in a discussion with an adult, who are going to be a friend to their classmate, um, who are going to be able to interact with a professor during office hours, those kind of things. And I believe, and, and you know, it's hard to fully believe, but I do believe that that is the direction that the college world is heading. And one indication that we are heading in that direction is the fact that there are 800 colleges that are now test optional. What's not changed in the public school world is this overriding focus on 
purely what I would call drill, kill, and bubble fill, which is, you know, we're going to drill and kill these these skills because we're going to have to take a, a standardized test. And more and more research is showing us that that is not the 21st century way that our children are going to learn. And you and I haven't talked about this, but, you know, you throw COVID on top of all of this and mm-hmm. it just adds this next level of all kinds of problems and, and downstream impact, which I don't think anybody fully understands quite yet. So, you know, we're chatting with Adam Brody, the head of Greenwich Country Day School. It seems to me that, you know, the academic achievement was placed on our kids as a gloss on top of the assumed other attributes and skills of growing up and I guess that those are not there now right so that's the problem we have to sort of go back to foundational aspects of becoming a human being um I I'm listening to you and um there are so many different ways I want to go with this conversation but as I'm listening to you I'm thinking number one how how are we if we're not taking standardized tests for academic achievement how are the colleges thinking they're going to find out about whether or not they want this individual to be part of their college campus? Are they going to be going yeah, to? It's a gr- you know, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and just to take one step back, you know, you you mentioned the teaching of you said the fundamental aspects of being a human being, and you're spot on on that one. And uh, I think what's happened again, going back to the COVID is imagine being out of school for a year when you were at one of these critical developmental stages of trying to figure out those fundamental aspects of being a human being, whether that's a, you know, a kid who was in preschool who was just coming into language acquisition and your teacher was wearing a mask for a year and you couldn't see their lips move, or you were a middle school kid just trying to figure out what it means to be uh, in a new friend group and then you were forced home for a year. Um, That's really forced the schools to pick up and kind of backfill some of those fundamental aspects of being a human being because um, those kids lost that for a year. Um, but but jumping back to your question about sort of how, how are colleges going to kind of figure this out, um, that's in some ways the million-dollar question. Uh, I don't think, you know, USC, who gets 60,000 applications, is going to be able to move away from a standardized test model of how they're going to be able to evaluate their students. Um, but I do think um, a school like Wesleyan, um, where they've become test optional, has already started to figure out ways to better get to know those kids. And that's going to be everything from their uh, written essays, their teacher recommendations, the interview that they're going to have with the child, um, the ability to submit a portfolio. You know, you're an artist, you're a musician. Um, they're excited to listen to your piano recital. They're excited to see some of your art uh, in a digital uh, format. And I think that um, the child's ability to, to, to tell their story uh, and to show a real interest in the idea of learning is going to be a differentiator for kids. And then again, that goes to one of the ways where I think we fall down in education as a whole, which is 
education is kind of very top down for children, right? They're told mm. that at nine o'clock you're going to put your algebra hat on, and at nine forty-five you're going to put your English hat on, and you're going to move from one class to the other when the bell rings. There's very little agency for children. Um, as we developed our new high school, we really tried to change that model. Um, we want our you know, juniors to have a real say in the what they study, the how mm. they study. And people think that that's, you know, like we're heretics. Um, but what we're starting to find is it's really resonating with the colleges and the children who are then sitting on the couch at the Princeton uh, interview, I think are distinguishing themselves because they're able to share a story, which is very, very different than the probably 800 interviews that that person had had in the previous month. Um, and that's because we're, we're allowing way more agency in their own education. And that's true for a 15 and a 16 year old. And that's where some people might say you're a little bit crazy, but um, again, we're, we're showing it to create deeper learning and, and stickier learning, which is again, what everybody is sort of after at the end of the day. We're chatting with Adam Rohde, the head of Greenwich Day School and the Greenwich Country Day School, pardon me. Uh, I'm really interested. I interviewed the gal, of course, I can't remember her name now, who wrote the book on the iGen generation who did that enormous sociological study. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I interviewed her as soon as the book came out. In fact, I was at WGCH in Greenwich at the time. And, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and she told me that the iPhone was transformative, like literally transformative, that she could see the difference in the uh, ability to engage and all these different metrics that she was looking at in terms of development of youth from pre-iPhone generation, where there were always sort of skips and starts and issues to focus on, and post-iPhone generation. She called it the iGen. And I'm wondering, what is your school's attitude toward the iPhone, the cell phone, and what, are you, what is your advice for parents? Sure. Well, um, you know, I'm not saying she's she's 100% spot on, and and it's uh, more and more research has come out just to to back that up and to verify that. Um, the first thing I'd say to parents is, and this is super hard, so I, I get it, um, but it's delay, 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 delay. As long as you can possibly delay. Um, I think it's better for your kid. There's a national movement called Wait Till Eight around cell phone use. And what's interesting is I have a lot of parents in our school who really dig that idea in third grade and in fourth grade, and they rally around and they're excited to do it. And then when their kids get into fifth and sixth grade, they hand them phones. And, and, I, and I don't do that as an indictment of, of them. I, I do that. It's, it's a reality. Um, it's become the social currency at any school. And are you willing to have your child be outside the social structure Mm. um, because everybody else has it and you're going to say to your kid, no. Now I have parents that do that. And um, it's, it's really interesting to watch. And I think those kids are able to be successful, but it's, um, it's hard. And the battles that probably happen at the dinner table and and at home are are epic. And so I can see how it's easy for a parent. Yeah. Epic. And, and yeah. I think it's that's why yeah. it's not hard for uh, for us to cave as parents. Um, and so then once our, our children have a phone, the next, uh, you know, delay, delay, delay. Then the next thing is we we can't abdicate our role as as parents and, and monitors on on the on the 
iPhone platform, the social media stuff. You, you can say to your child, we're not going to put Snapchat on your phone. Uh, you can say to your child, we're going to, you're going to, the password is going to be something that I have. And every night I'm going to look through your phone. Um, we can create all kinds of, of standards, and obviously they're going to change developmentally as your child gets older. But, you know, we can say that your phone's not going to be in your room at night. You're going to charge your phone in the kitchen. And so at 8 o'clock, it gets plugged in in the kitchen. You don't get it in your bedroom for the rest mm. of the night. Um, those are hard, though, and but it, if you're really. able to do them. No, those no. are not hard. Those are reasonable <laughs> boundaries. I never let my kids have TVs in their bedroom. No, 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 those mm-hmm. are not that hard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and an mm-hmm. iPhone's a TV, so that's easy to yep. me. Yeah. Well, I mean, the more we can regulate, the more we can observe and oversee, uh, the better off we, we are. Um, you know, to talk about that iGen uh, stuff, I would say that 70% of the discipline problems that we'll deal with at, at my school have some component of technology baked into them. And that's anything from, you know, an academic dis- dishonesty piece where something was downloaded from the internet, not properly cited to some mean spirited behavior on social media. Um, it is so much easier to be unkind in a anonymous world of disappearing tweets and Snapchats and things like that. And so um, the, we're, we're again, very intentional about it at school. And so, you know, our middle school kids may not have a cell phone. They, they, they obviously have them. They have to be in their lockers from the second they walk in the building. Excellent. And then the only time Excellent. they're ever allowed to use them is at 4 o'clock outside the building Excellent. if they're texting their mom that for That to me home. is it. See, that's something every public school should have. I don't understand why they don't do that. I don't get that. That would be a reason yeah. for me if I was today a parent to find the money or somehow enroll my kid in private mm-hmm. school for that mm-hmm. reason alone. For that reason, yeah. for that policy alone. Just to tune yeah. out and just have to be with other human beings. There are there are a bunch of schools that have um, you know looked at different solutions to that. There are schools that collect the kids' phones as they walk in, and they have little pockets that they put them in, and they have to stay in those pockets during the day. Um, and I can't speak to sort of, and I'm sure there are some public schools that have moved into that realm. Um, and so I can't speak to why, you know, what other schools policies are, but, you know, we, we feel it's such a distraction and such a it temptation is. that we've it got is. to help our kids uh, deal with it. Adam Rohde, head of Greenwich Country Day School. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I hope that you'll come back. I, I just think that there's so much to this conversation and we need to keep having the conversation. So thank you. Well, Pleasure, pleasure being on, and glad you guys are having these kinds of conversations. I think they're helpful for all, for all of us, and uh, be happy to come back anytime. Thank you so much. Adam Rohde on the Lisa Wexler Show. We'll be right back. Here's what Connecticut is saying about Lisa Wexler. I just love the moderation of the way you handle the calls. Back to the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600. I really enjoyed that conversation with Adam Rohde, the head of Greenwich Country Day School. And if you know somebody raising children right now, I think it's going to be a really worthwhile one. So we're going to post it on WICC600.com as our audio of the day. But also I will repost it as well on SoundCloud and we will have it as a standalone. I just think that parents need to hear and be encouraged by the data. And the data shows that they need to have their kids wait before they use technology, which we never see anymore. We see fidgety kids in diners and restaurants. And what do the parents do? They give them a screen. 
We see fidgety kids in the back of a car, and what do the parents do? They hand them a screen. A screen has become the babysitter. Now, we all know that TV, you know, was the babysitter for years and years and years, and it was a boombox, and you had to go inside and sit, and at one time you didn't even have a clicker for it. And that was bad enough. They used to call it the idiot box. But now these screens go everywhere with us. And so our children, what are they learning? They're learning that, uh, that the calming influence of watching a screen is preferred behavior versus an individual human being working with them to help them get out of their fidget, to help them distract themselves in a more productive way rather than just going to a screen. And, you know, it's very nice to be, you know, sort of passively entertained your whole life, but is that really what we want? And what what Mr. Rohde was talking about was the fact that technology leads to discipline issues, and it does. I know that it does because people are mean online. They uh, take inappropriate photos of others online and then post them to different social groups. They get in a lot of trouble for what they do online, and that's because they live online. And very often, a lot of our kids cannot shake our hands and make eye contact and have a real conversation with a grown-up. That's part of growing up. Anyway, I know I'm talking to you. You're already in the choir. But that's why I think it's an important conversation. And if we're going to repackage it for a way that you can distribute it to those that you care about. 203-333-9422. 203-333-9422. Listen, one of the stories that we continue to follow is ever sources quest to cut down trees which is apparently expanded from their initial projections uh the town of darien said we don't think so we don't want it but in a compromise that was reached by between their first selectman and eversource there are still a lot more coming trees coming down than some people would have wanted after a year of negotiations eversource is going to cut down 62 trees in darien running along the high-voltage transmission lines, part of the corridor of clear-cutting that is going from Greenwich right through Westport of 18 miles. According to an Eversource spokesperson, 14 of the 18 miles have been completed so far. The company announced plans to expand clear-cutting across 12 more towns in the state, spanning an estimated 4,000 miles. Uh, Only 10 trees were preserved of the 72 that Eversource originally requested to be cut down. Only 10. As part of the agreement, Eversource will replant the area along Little Brook Road by adding new plants and trees themselves will not exceed 15 feet in height. The company will be taking responsibility for the growth of these trees. First Selectman Monica McNally called the settlement a middle ground saying they spent many sessions in mediation working through this and paying a great deal of attention to the detail. Greenwich also underwent mediation with Eversource when the town's tree warden ruled that only two trees could be removed of the 29 that Eversource wanted gone. The company appealed the decision to Pura, and the two parties eventually agreed to remove 25 trees. So even though the tree warden in Greenwich said only two, were unhealthy, dying, unsafe. In fact, Eversource got its way, and 25 otherwise very healthy trees are coming out of the ground. And let's just remember that trees are homes. They are homes for our insects. They are homes for our wildlife. So every time we cut down a mature tree, we are quite literally 
making uh, those critters and those insects homeless for a while until they can find another tree for shelter and for growth. And, you know, trees are the lifeblood and the beauty and the sustaining climate um, best way to counteract the impact of climate change that we have here in Connecticut. So um, I got a, a very thoughtful note from a listener yesterday who basically was very bummed about all of this that's going on and particularly bummed that there doesn't seem to be any real any real traction on the overwhelming public sentiment that if Eversource is going to be clearing trees down, at the very same time they ought to be consolidating efforts around the state and look with other utilities and natural gas companies and water companies and wherever else that is already cutting up roads so that they can bury the underground wires as well. And there just doesn't seem any impetus for that. 203-333-9422. So I just wanted to give you that news about that. All right, we've got lots more to talk about in the next hour. You're going to be shocked at how many nip sales there are in Connecticut. If you don't know what that is, I don't blame you. But these nips are these mini bottles of alcohol that uh, Larry Cafaro, a former state Senate minority leader, calls a secret culture, a throwaway disposable secret culture. And I'm going to tell you how in the next hour Connecticut changed its law to encourage our counting of the nips with some money that goes back into the state's coffers, and we'll see how that money is being spent. Okay, also in the next hour, we're going to chat with the Director of Infectious Disease at Northern Westchester Hospital. He will take and answer your questions about flu, COVID, RSV, and other infectious diseases. we got lots more stories to share with each other. Stick around for the next live hour of the Lisa Wexler Show here on WICC 600, WICC600.com, 107.3 FM, and of course, Alexa. We'll be right back. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.